The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We're going to be looking at the Great Tribulation this morning. Uh, hopefully you like history, because we're going to do some study in history today. All right? Um, extra-biblical study in history, because the stuff we're going to talk about, a lot of it, is not in the Bible, and I'll explain that as we go along. But I think there's probably not a Christian alive who hasn't heard of the Great Tribulation. You know, everybody, I mean, even probably a lot of non-Christians have heard about the tribulation. Matthew 24, 21, Yeshua said, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. I think from the earliest days of our Christian walk, we have heard messages on the tribulation, we've read books about it, We've even seen movies about it. When I was a youth pastor, I used to play a lot of movies about the tribulation. Boy, you could scare teens to do just about anything. You know, some of those, some of those movies were really scary. But here's the bad thing. Most of what we've heard is the eschatology of dispensationalism. And here's what it teaches. It teaches that someday soon, it's always soon. It was soon 2,000 years ago. It's still soon today. Soon Christ is going to return to the earth invisibly, and he's going to snatch away all the Christians. All right, That's what they call the rapture. After God has removed the church, he's going to go back and start dealing with Israel again. And there will be a seven-year period called the tribulation in which the earth and its inhabitants will be destroyed by God's wrath. Now, among premillennialists, there are those who hold different positions as to when the rapture will happen. All right, Some are pre-trib, some are mid-trib, some are post-trib. In other words, some people think the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation starts. Everybody wants to be in that group. That's a good group, right? Let's get out of here before this happens. Then you got the mid-tribbers halfway through. You get to suck, get sucked out. And the post-tribbers, you get to stay through the whole tribulation. And then you go after the end of that. All right? So those are the different positions. Um, I know Christians who have stored food in preparation for the famine that will come during the tribulation. They obviously were not pre-trib. Okay? At the end of the tribulation, dispensationalism teaches that Christ will return and inaugurate the millennial kingdom, which will be a physical, earthly kingdom. At the end of the millennium, there's going to be a rebellion, and Christ will come and destroy the rebels. And then the eternal state will begin. Now, I don't know about you, but I count three comings. <laughs> yeah, through, through that view, so I'm not sure how they work all that out. The entire scheme of dispensational eschatology, though very popular, I think, in recent years, has no roots, listen to me, no roots in historic Christian interpretation of the Scripture. Everybody believes it, but there's no root, historic roots for it. According to preterists, which I am, I hold to the preterist view of eschatology, the Great Tribulation was the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman army that took place in the year 70 A.D. This has been the belief of Christians throughout the history of the church until basically 170 years or so ago. Then they started shifting their views. Is the Great Tribulation 
Something that looms in our future? Or is it a past event? Is Matthew 24 talking about a yet-to-us future event that's going to happen in our lifetime? Or is it something that was geared towards the disciples? Well, before we get started, let me make it clear that the Great Tribulation is past. I hate to disappoint you if you're looking forward to going through that. Okay. Now, what I'm not saying, I'm not saying you're not going to go through tribulation. We all go through tribulation. I'm saying the great tribulation talked about in Scripture is over. It happened in the first century to the people God said it would happen to. Now, let me remind you that Matthew 24 is answering the disciples' question about the destruction of Jerusalem. This is so important. This is how it starts out. 24.1, Yeshua left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. So what's the subject here, people? It's the temple. He's leaving the temple. They come and they say, look at the temple. Isn't it marvelous? And it was a marvelous, incredible sight. It was a fortress, a glistening fortress on a hill. And so they point out the buildings. And verse 2 says, but he answered them. You see all these, all these is the buildings of the temple. Do you not? Then the Lord says to his disciples, truly I say to you, the people who asked the question, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That would have been shocking to them. This whole temple, all the thing you see, marvelous as it is, it's going. It's going to be torn down. There won't be one stone left upon another. So the disciples' response is they go across the valley. They sit down on the Mount of Olives. His disciples come to him privately saying, tell us when? When what? When will these things be? What's a, what are these things? The temple being destroyed. That's what he's talking about. And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? This question is basically three parts. We want to know when the temple will be destroyed. When will you return in your second coming? And when will the age end? They connected these three things, people. They are connected in Scripture. You cannot disconnect them. So if the temple was destroyed, guess what else happened? The Lord returned. The age ended. Alright? They're connected. Now, thus far in our study, we've been given two signs that we looked at. One of the signs was the gospel will be preached into all the world. Be preached to all nations. So we looked at that. Then they said, also we saw that we will see the, they will see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel. So we've seen that both of those things happen in the first century. If you missed those messages, go back and listen to that. The disciples saw these things come to pass. After talking about the abomination of desolation, which was Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, he goes into the Great Tribulation. So Jerusalem is surrounded, armies are coming in. What happens next? There's a Great Tribulation because what they're going to go through in this war is horrible. 24.21 says, For then there will be Great Tribulation. When is then? Within a few thousand years? No. It's all connected. The then is referring to the context of verses 15 through 20 when you see the abomination of desolation, which Luke tells us is Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Now, you're smart enough to figure this out. If you saw you were in a city and it was surrounded by armies, guess what? Desolation is near, right? We're in trouble. All right? We already saw that the abomination of desolation happened in 67 A.D. when Cestius Gallus, the Roman general, 
laid siege to Jerusalem. The Great Tribulation is not something that's in our future. It was then. It happened during the siege of Jerusalem. All this warning came to the Jews. This happened to the Jews. And this is made abundantly clear, I think, through the parallel text in Luke's Gospel. Luke 21, 20-24. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Yeah, I could figure that out. There's armies all around us. Guess what's going to happen next? Then, watch what he says, let those who are in Judea flee. If you're in that city, get out of there. That's contrary to what you would want to do because Jerusalem was a fortress. You see an army, let's run to the fort. The Lord says, don't do it. Get out of there. Let those who are inside the city depart. In other words, if you're there, get out. And let not those who are in the country enter it. You know, you're, you see the armies, well, let's run into the fortress. No, don't do that. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. That's Israel. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now notice who in particular, verse 23 says, this tribulation is going to come upon. It's going to come upon the earth and the word here is gay and it's referring to Jerusalem and this people, the land. It's coming upon the land of Israel, this people, first century Jews. Not a future world. Verse 24 gives us added details to exactly what's going to happen in the Great Tribulation. We will look more closely at those details of verse 24 in a few moments. But right now, I want to examine verse 22. For these are the days of vengeance. The days when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies. The day when these army is attacking to fulfill all that is written. Now, What exactly does he mean? How is this going to fulfill all that is written? All that is written here refers to prophecy. All the prophecies that have been written. And here's what I want you to understand. This is, I think, a very important point. All prophecy, all biblical prophecy was fulfilled when Jerusalem was destroyed. Okay? Now, when I say all was fulfilled, one of the prophecies was a new heaven and earth. Now, when I say it was fulfilled, we entered the new heaven and earth. It's not over. We're still in the new heaven and earth. It's ongoing, but the fulfillment came that we entered into it. All right? So all prophecy was fulfilled. Now, Daniel tells us this very same thing back in Daniel 9.24. It says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people. That's Israel, Daniel's people. Your holy city, that's Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring about everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint a most holy place. Now, here's what's interesting here. The Hebrew scholars, the Hebrew commentaries are in agreement. That should be shocking to you. They're in agreement on what seal, both vision and profit mean. I mean, it's hard to get people to agree on anything. It's amazing how many people agree on what this means. It means to end, at the end and complete fulfillment of all prophecy. Alright? Daniel's prophecy then tells of a time when all prophecy would cease to be given, and what had been given will be fulfilled. When would this be? 
Well, Daniel's vision ends with the destruction of Jerusalem, which we know occurred in 70 A.D. Look at Daniel 9.26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. To the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. He's going to destroy the city, that's Jerusalem, and the sanctuary. So Luke is saying the same thing Daniel said, which is that the time Jerusalem is destroyed, when it is destroyed, all prophecy will be fulfilled. Well, what does that include? That would include the prophecy of the second coming. That include the prophecy of the resurrection of the dead, the new heavens and earth. Everything prophesied to Israel would be fulfilled at the time of Jerusalem's destruction. Daniel 12.1 says, At that time shall arise Michael. Now, Michael is a watcher. Okay? We've been talking about them. The great prince who is in charge of your people. Michael is a watcher over Israel. Daniel's people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. Does that sound familiar? It should. We just read it in Matthew 24, 21. Look at, there shall be a time of trouble. There will be a time of great tribulation, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time, since has not been from the beginning of the world. They're very similar. We're talking about the same thing. Now notice the next verse in Daniel. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. This is the resurrection of the just and the unjust, and it happens at the time of Jerusalem's destruction. So does the second coming, according to 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-8. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. He's writing to the Thessalonians, they're being afflicted. He's saying God's going to repay with affliction those who afflict you to grant relief to you who are afflicted. He's going to give you relief as well as us. When's that going to happen? When the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven. With His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Yeshua. Here Paul ties the destruction of Jerusalem, the days of vengeance, with the second coming of Yeshua. This is so important for our understanding. The completion of the plan of redemption. The fulfillment of all prophecy was tied to Jerusalem's destruction, making it an age-changing event. William Kindle, in his book, What the Bible Says About the Great Tribulation, said this, This period of great tribulation is not an event which the entire world is yet awaiting, but a past historical event of unparalleled concentrated severity, specifically afflicting the Jewish nation in 70 A.D. Eusebius of Caesarea, who lived in the 3rd century. So this, we're going back a ways. Gary, you knew him, didn't you? <laughs> Eusebius said this. He believed that the flight of the Christians, the abomination of desolation, and the great tribulation were all connected with the events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. See, this was a historical belief until dispensationalism came along and changed everything. 
Now, John Walvoord, who was a leading spokesman for dispensationalism, he said this, The Great Tribulation is a specific period of time beginning beginning with the abomination of desolation. And I agree with that. We saw that last week. It began in 67. Cestius Gallus, the Roman general, laid siege to Jerusalem. He goes on to say, in closing with the second coming of Christ. Okay, I agree with that too. All right. He says, in light of Daniel's prophecies and confirmed by reference to 42 months, in Revelation 11.2 and 13.5, the Great Tribulation is a specific three and a half year period leading to the second coming. I agree with everything Walbert says here. The problem is that Walbert sees these things as yet future. He saw them as future. But if we can establish that the abomination of desolation and the great tribulation are past, then we can clearly understand that so is the second coming of Christ because they're all connected. Now let's look at what exactly happened in AD 70 and see if it was the great tribulation. Now in order to look at what happened, we have to move outside the Bible because the Bible doesn't tell us what happened. Why doesn't the Bible tell us what happened in the destruction in A.D. 70? Because it was all written before A.D. 70. All right? A friend of mine, Zane Hodges, was on the translation committee for the new King James. All right? He said everybody, he told me, everybody on that committee, which none of them were preterists, they all believed that all Scripture was written prior to A.D. 70. And I was kind of surprised to hear that because, you know, but he, he, he believed it. He said the whole translation committee believed all this happened. All right. Now, here's the sad thing. Most Christians are totally unfamiliar with what happened in 870. You go to church all your life, you never hear about the destruction of Jerusalem in 870. It's just something that's not out there, okay? So, of course, you can't understand how something happened in the past could be the Great Tribulation. See, the Bible only predicts what's going to happen to Jerusalem. Because it wasn't written afterwards. And that's why it's so funny that, you know, some of these authors say, the book of Revelation was written in 93. Really? It's funny, that whole book doesn't even mention what happened to Jerusalem. Written by a Jew about, you know, past one of the greatest catastrophes that ever happened to the Jews, and they don't mention it. And see, to me, that's one of the strongest arguments that the Bible's written before, because none of the Bible mentions the destruction. And that's a big deal. So to find out what happened, we need to go to history. We need to look at historical documents. Alright? And most of the history that we're going to look at this morning comes from Josephus. Alright, I'm sure you've heard of him. Josephus was a Jew. Josephus lived and wrote during the time of the destruction. Alright? He was a Jew, but he was kind of smart because he defected to Rome. Okay? Very early. And so then, Rome used him to go around with us and write the story. I want you to write what you see, write what happens in this destruction. So he's there, he's writing. The Roman uh, Tacitus also did the same thing, but we have a lot of information from Josephus. And the stuff I'm going to share with you this morning comes from the book, The War of the Jews, all right, which Josephus wrote. It's not light reading, but it is fascinating reading to see what actually went on in there. And I think if people were more familiar with history and with, with what Josephus wrote, they would get, all right, that, yes, this is the tribulation. When I was still a partial preterist, I got a hold of a book by David Chilton called 
the Great Tribulation. Okay? And what I was surprised at is what Chilton did as he took the book of Revelation and then he would quote Josephus. And Revelation, it was just all Revelation and Josephus. Revelation, and you saw that they laid like a transparency on top of one another. What Revelation said was going to happen, Chilton was saying, here's Josephus saying this is going to happen. And I was like, just it's an awesome book. I mean, just a little paperback, but called The Great Tribulation by Chilton. It will help you to see what Revelation is talking about is history, all right? Now, Josephus said this in the preface to the War of the Jews. He said, Where is the war with the Jews made with the Romans hath been the greatest of all those, not only that have been in our times, but in a manner of those that were ever heard of. You see what he's doing there? He's agreeing with Yeshua. And listen, Josephus was not a Christian, but he agrees with what we just read of Yeshua in Matthew 24, 21, that the war with the Romans was the greatest of all wars ever heard of. Now, what was it that caused this war? I think many think the Romans just decided to get in there and crush the Jews. All right? So they laid siege to Jerusalem and destroyed it. This is not the cause. Notice a verse in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel 9, 26. And after the 62 weeks, the anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with the flood. And to the end, there are there shall be war. Declarations are decreed. Now, the people of the prince who is to come. Who's the prince here? Well, if you back up a verse to 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. So the nearest antecedent for the coming prince in verse 26 would carry us back to Messiah. Here it says anointed, that's the word Messiah. All right, Messiah, the prince. Who's that? Well, that's Christ. Therefore, Christ becomes the one and only prince in this whole context. All right. So watch, it's the people of the prince. Who are the people of the prince? They're the Jewish people. These are the Jews, okay? So, and the people of the prince shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So Daniel is saying the destruction of Jerusalem gets blamed on the people of the prince. They're the ones responsible. Rome did not initiate the war with Jerusalem. The zealots in Jerusalem incited the Jews to rebel against Rome and to quit paying their taxes. Can you believe that? Quit paying your taxes. Remember what Yeshua told them about taxes? He said, tell us then. What do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Yeshua goes, well, give me a coin. Whose picture's on it? They said, oh, it's Caesar's. He said, then Caesar's. He said, then he said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Well, guess what? They didn't listen. The Jews stopped paying their taxes. They rebelled against Rome. A recurring theme in Josephus' work on on the Roman War is a clear imputation of guilt upon the Jews themselves for starting the war. Over and over, Josephus says, it's the Jews' fault. They're the ones who did all this. It's the Jews' fault. Remember, he's a Jew. okay? But he's blaming it on his countrymen. Josephus said this, However, I will not go into the other extreme out of opposition to those men who extol the Romans. Nor will I determine to raise the actions of my countrymen too high. But I will prosecute the actions of both parties with accuracy. 
Yet I shall suit my language to the passions I am under, as to the affairs I describe, and must be allowed to indulge some lamentation upon the miseries undergone by my own countrymen. For that it for that it was a seditious, seditious tempter of our own that destroyed it, and that they were the tyrants among the Jews who brought the Roman power upon us. So he's saying, it's the Jews who did this, all right, clearly, who unwillingly attacked us and occasioned the burning of our holy temple. Titus Caesar, who destroyed it, is himself a witness, who during the entire war pitied the people who were kept under by the seditious and did often voluntarily delay the taking of the city and allowed time to the siege in order to let the authors have opportunity for repentance. Accordingly, it appears to me that the misfortunes of all men from the beginning of the world, if they be compared to these of the Jews, are not so considerable as they were, while the authors of them were not foreigners neither. Again, he's saying, you know, this is one of the greatest wars, and the Jews rebelled, and so this brought the war. Well, they didn't only rebel in taxes, they rebelled in offering a sacrifice to Caesar, because that was something they were required to do. And Josephus says this was the beginning of the war. He said, at that time, it was that some of those that principally excited the people to go to war made an assault upon certain fortress called Masada. Masada was attached to the temple of Jerusalem. It was a fortress there so the Romans could overlook Jerusalem and the temple and keep an eye on things. So if there's any trouble, they could rush out and take care of it. Well, they took it by treachery. The rebels went and took Masada and slew the Romans that were there and put others of their own party to keep it. At the same time, Eleazar, the son of Ananias, the high priest, a very bold youth who was at the time governor of the temple, persuaded those that officiated in the divine service to receive no gift or sacrifice for any foreigner. And this was the true beginning of our war with the Romans. Okay, When they stopped offering sacrifices to Caesar, he said, this is where the war began. For they rejected the sacrifice of Caesar on this account. And when many of the high priests and principled men besought them not to omit the sacrifice, which it was customary for them to offer for their princes, they would not be prevailed upon. They relied much upon their multitude for the most flourishing part of the innovators assisted them. But they had the chief regard to Eleazar, the governor of the temple. And indeed, many there were of the Jews that deserted every day and fled away from the zealous. So the Jews are escaping to get away from what's going on inside the city, what the zealots are doing. Although their flight was very difficult, since they had guarded every passage out of the city, the zealots were guarding the doors, and slew every one of them was caught at them, as taking it for granted they were going over to the Romans. So they just decided they're trying to escape, they're running to the Roman side, and so we got to kill them. Yet did he who gave them money get clear off, while he only that gave, the, gave them none was voted a traitor. So the upshot of this that the rich purchased their flight by money, while none of the poor were, but none but the poor were slain. Along all the roads also vast numbers of dead bodies lay in heaps. And even many of those that were so zealous in deserting at length chose rather to perish in the city for the hopes of burial made death in their own city appear as those 
less terrible to them. So they said, well, I'll just stay here and die because you go out there, you're not getting buried. Now, that was not good to not get buried. But these zealots came at last to that degree of barbarity as not to bestow a burial either on those slain in the city or on those that lay along the roads. But as if they had made an agreement to cancel both the laws of their country and the laws of nature, and at the same time that they defiled men with their wicked actions, they would pollute the divinity divinity itself also. They left the dead bodies to putrefy under the sun. And the same punishment was allotted to those as buried any as to those that deserted. In other words, if you got caught burying somebody, they killed you. Okay? Which was no other than death. While he that granted the favor of a grave to another would presently stand in need of grave himself. To say all in a word, no other gentle passion was so entirely lost among them as mercy. For what were the greatest object of pity did most of all irritate these wretches? He's talking about the zealots inside the city, not the Romans. And they transferred their rage from the living to those that had been slain and from the dead to the living. Nay, the terror was so very great that he who survived called them that were first dead happy as being at rest already. As did those who were under torture in the prisons declare that upon this comparison, those that lay unburied were the happiest. These men, therefore, trampled upon the laws of men and laughed at the laws of God. And for the oracle of the prophets, they ridiculed them as the tricks of jugglers. Yet did these prophets foretell many things concerning the rewards of virtue and the punishment of vice. In other words, God had, prophets had told this was going to happen and they're just ignoring it. You know, they just, oh, it's not true. Which when these zealots violated they occasioned the fulfilling of those very prophecies belonging to their own country. We'll look at some of those in a minute. For there was a certain ancient oracle of those men that the city should then be taken and the sanctuary burnt by right of war when a sedition should invade the Jews and their own hand should pollute the temple of God. Now, while these zealots did not quite disbelieve these predictions, they made themselves the instruments of their accomplishments. So, in light of what Josephus says here about the dead bodies laying in heaps and rotting in the sun, listen to the prophecy of Amos. Amos 8, 1-4. This is what the Lord Yahweh showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And he said, a basket of summer fruit. Then Yahweh said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings. In that day, declares the Lord Yahweh, so many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. Why was all this happening to Israel? Why was God... They were His people. Why was He judging them so harshly? It's because... They had broken the covenant with God. They had turned from God and thus were suffering a covenantal judgment. Some of these things that Josephus writes about and some of the prophecies should make us tremble. You know, I mean, God is not someone to be 
trifled with, okay? When he tells you this, what he wants, that's what he wants, and you need to do what he wants, okay? Um, <clears throat> Deuteronomy 28. Now, hopefully you're familiar with Deuteronomy 28. It's a long chapter that deals with blessings and cursings. The first 14 verses of this chapter are all, blessed shall you be, you shall be this blessed, you shall be that blessed. All the great things that are going to come upon you if you obey God. Then verse 15, we have a shift. But, if you will not obey the voice of Yahweh your God, or be careful to do His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And it goes on and on and on about curses. Okay? (laughs) Way more than the blessings. But these are going to come upon you. You can be blessed if you obey, or you can be cursed. All right? Look at verse 63. As Yahweh took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so Yahweh will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. Well, that's hard. You know, God took delight in blessing you, and He's going to take delight in ruining you because of your disobedience. And you shall be plucked off the land that you're entering to take possession of. It's just, it's terrifying. And, and listen, okay, so Rome has got the city surrounded. It's a siege. They built a wall, they surround it, you know, we're going to starve you, we're going to, you know, hold out until you just can't live anymore, and then you're going to come out and surrender to us, or until we can knock down the walls and get in there. Well, they're inside the city, and there's a whole lot of stores in the city, corn and other provisions. But they go through a great famine, because in the infighting that's going on with the rebels, they're destroying their own supplies. The Romans are surrounding the city and they know there's war, but they're so busy fighting each other that they destroy the only thing that could keep them surviving. It's crazy. Josephus writes this. And now there were three treacherous factions in the city. These are the Jews inside going on. The one parted from the other. Eleazar and his party that kept the sacred first fruits came against John in their cups. Those that were with John plundered the populace and went out with zeal against Simon. This Simon had his supply of provisions from the city, in opposition to the seditious. When, therefore, John was assaulted on both sides, he made his men turn about, throwing his darts upon the citizens that came upon against him from the colsters who he had in his possession. While he opposed those that attacked him from the temple by engines of war, And if at any time he was freed from those that were above him, which happened frequently from their being drunk and tired, (laughs) it's just like, yeah, they couldn't keep attacking because they're just wore out. He sallied out with a great number that Simeon and his party, and this he did always in such parts of the city as he could come at, till he set on fire those houses that were full of corn and of all the provision. So in the three factious groups that are fighting in the city, they're killing each other, they're burning up their supplies. I'm like, are they not even thinking that, uh, we got the Romans out here to deal with, you know, wouldn't it be better if we worked together? Now this is all prophesied people, and they're fulfilling the prophecy to a T. The same thing was done by Simeon, when upon the other's retreat, he attacked the city also. As if they had one purpose, on pur- as if they had on purpose done it to serve the Romans. 
It's like, you guys are fighting on the wrong side here. By destroying what the city had laid up against the siege, and by thus cutting off the nerves of their own power, accordingly it so came to pass that all the places that were about the temple were burnt down and were become an intermediate desert space, ready for fighting on both sides, and that almost all the corn was burnt, which would have been sufficient for a siege of many years. So they were taken by means of famine. They had all this corn that could have lasted a long time, but they burn up their own supplies, which it was impossible they should have been unless they had prepared the way for it by its, this procedure. In other words, they could have lasted a long time against the Romans, maybe even one, but they're too busy fighting themselves. Now, this famine during the Great Tribulation was predicted. It was predicted in Ezekiel 4, 10 through 12. And your food that you eat shall be by weight, 20 shekels a day. From day to day you shall eat it. And water you shall drink by measure, the sixth part of a hen. From day to day you shall drink it, and you shall eat it as a barley cake, baking it in their sight on human dung. Now, this depicts a famine, okay? But we also see famine depicted in John's Olivet Discourse, which is the book of Revelation. In a Revelation, you're familiar with the four horsemen of the Apocalypse, uh, 6, 5, and 6 says, When he opened the third seal, <clears throat> I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in its hand. The scales are a symbol of famine. All right? <clears throat> its rider had a pair of scales in its hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. So this famine that's happening in Jerusalem is wiping out a lot of the populace. Now after the horse of famine, which you would naturally expect, comes the horse of death. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth, to kill with the sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. So, Josephus records the history that bears out the fulfillment of these awful prophecies. For example, he says, And indeed, why do I relate these particular calamities? While Menaeus, the son of Lazarus, came running to Titus at the very time, and told him that there had been carried out through that one gate, which was entrusted to his care, no fewer than 115,880 dead bodies. You're like, well, that's pretty specific, right? What's he sitting there, counting the bodies that are going out? Yes. Watch Josephus continues. In the interval between the 14th day of the month, Nisan, when the Romans pitched their camp by the city, and the first day of the month, Tammuz, this was itself a prodigious multitude, and though this man was not himself set as governor at that gate, yet he was appointed to pay the public stipend for carrying these bodies out. And so it was obliged of necessity to number them. He's getting paid for the bodies that go out, so he's counting every one of them, okay? That makes sense, right? 
while the rest were buried by their relations, though all their burial was but this, to bring them away and cast them out of the city. That was their burial. Throw them over the walls. Okay. After this man, there ran to Titus many of the eminent citizens and told him the entire number of the poor that were dead and that no fewer than 600,000 were thrown out at the gates, though still the number of the rest could not be discovered. And they told him further that when they were no longer able to carry out the dead bodies of the poor, they laid their corpses on heaps in very large houses and shut and shut them up therein, as also was a mediumist of wheat sold for a talent, and that when a while afterwards it was not possible to gather herbs by reason of the city was all walled about, some persons were driven to that terrible distress as to search the common sewers and old dung hills of cattle, so they're digging through the sewers, they're digging through the dung of cattle, and to eat the dung which they got there. And what they of old could not endure so much to see, they now used for food. In other words, before they couldn't stand to look on this cattle dung, now they're eating it. When the Romans barely heard all this, they commiserated their case, while the seditious who saw it also did not repent, but suffered the same distress to come upon themselves. For they were blinded by that fate which was already coming upon the city and upon themselves also. Now the depth of this famine is clearly seen in the gut-wrenching story that Josephus tells of Mary. This is in the War of the Jews. He says, Now, there was a certain woman that dwelt beyond the Jordan. Her name was Mary. The father, her father was Eleazar of the village of Bethzeb which signifies the house of Hyssop. She was eminent for her family and her wealth. So here's this wealthy woman and had fled away to Jerusalem with the rest of the multitude. See, she made a mistake. She ran into Jerusalem. Okay. Instead of running away, she fled away to Jerusalem with the rest of the multitude and was with them besieged there and at this time. So she didn't listen to the words of the Lord. She went in the city. First mistake. All right. The other effects of this woman had been already seized upon. In other words, they stole most of her stuff. Such, a, such I mean as she had brought with her out of Perea and removed to the city. What she had treasured up besides and also what food she had contrived to save had also been carried off by the rapacious guards who came every day running into the house for that purpose. So she's at home. The guards are coming in every day taking Anything that she has for food. Because everybody's starving in the city. All right, This put the poor woman into a very great passion. And by the frequent reproaches of imprecation, she cast out these rapacious villains. She had provoked them to anger against her. But none of them, either out of indignation she had raised against herself, or out of the commiseration of her case, would they take away her life. So she haunted them and taunted them, but they didn't kill her. And if she found any food, she perceived her labors were for others and not for herself. And it was now become impossible for her any way to find any more food. While the famine pierced through her very bowels and marrow, when also her passion was fired to a degree beyond the famine itself. Nor did she consult with anything, 
but with her passion and the necessity she was in. She then attempted a most unnatural thing. And snatching up her son, who was a child sucking at her breast, she said, O thou miserable infant, for whom shall I preserve thee in this war, this famine, and this sedition? As to the war with the Romans, if they preserve our lives, we must be slaves. The famine also will destroy us even before the slavery comes upon us. Yet are these seditious rogues more terrible than both the other. Come on, be thou my food, and be thou a fury to these seditious vartlets, and I a byword to the world, which is all that is now awaiting to complete the calamities of the Jews. As soon as she has said this, she slew her son, and then roasted him and ate a half of him. Now, this is, again, this is Josephus telling the history of what's going on. And kept the other half by her concealed. Upon this, the seditious come in presently, and smelling the horrid scent of this food, they threatened her that they would cut her throat immediately if she did not show them what food she had gotten ready. She replied that she had saved a very fine portion of it for them, and withal uncovered what was left of her son. Hereupon they were seized with a horror and amazement of mind, and stood astonished at the sight when she said to them, This is mine own son. And what hath been done with mine own doing? What has been done with my own doing? Come, eat of this food, for I have eaten it myself. Do you pretend to be either more tender than a woman or more compassionate than the mother? But if you be so scrupulous and do abominate this my sacrifice as I have eaten the one half, let the rest be reserved for me also. After which those men went out trembling, being never so much affrightened at anything as they were at this. And with the same difficulty they left the rest of that meat to the mother upon which the whole city was full of horrid action immediately, and while everyone laid this miserable case before their own eyes. In other words, this spread to everybody that this woman is eating her own child. They trembled as if this unheard of action had been done by themselves. So those that were thus distressed by the famine were very desirous to die. And those already dead were esteemed happy because they had not lived long enough either to hear or see such miseries. Can you even begin to imagine the pain that this woman was in that she would kill and then eat her child? Okay, this is what's going on. Now listen to the covenantal curses of Deuteronomy 28. You shall eat the fruit of of your womb, the flesh of your sons and your daughters, whom Yahweh your God has given you, in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. This is one of the curses. And here are the Jews in the city eating their own. Verse 57. Her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears, because lacking anything, she will eat them secretly. In the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in your towns. Now, the Jews knew these scriptures, 
Can't you imagine when they, there's words going around, this is happening, they're like, well, that's what the Lord said would happen if we didn't obey Him. Here we are fulfilling the prophecies. Listen, I would strongly encourage you to read Deuteronomy 28. I mean, just read through the chapter, first 14 verses, talk about all the blessings, then for 15 it changes, and the rest is all cursing. And just see what God had promised to these Jews if they disobeyed Him. And as you read through it, keep in mind what we've discussed today. What He promised would happen. Well, I kind of hope that by now you're beginning to understand the words of Yeshua. Then there will be great tribulation. Alright, this was a, a unimaginable tribulation that the Jews were going to. A tribulation, He says, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now and no, never will be. Alright, let me share with you one more passage from Josephus, just to make sure you get the understanding of the severity that's happening here. You think you got it? I'm gonna, I want to seal it, okay? I want to seal it. Hereupon, some of the deserters, having no other way, leaped down from the wall immediately. Now, these walls were huge, people, alright? But they're like, I'm, I'm done, I'm out of here. While others of them went out of the city with stones. All right, they, they're, in other words, carrying stones as if they would fight them. In other words, they're running out like, I'm going to go fight the Romans. As soon as they get out, they drop the stones and we surrender, you know, run into the Romans. But thereupon they fled away to the Romans. But here a worse fate accompanied these than what they had found within the city. What? How could it be worse? Well, watch. And they met with a quicker dispatch from the too great abundance that they had among the Romans. Okay, so they're starving. Now they get to the Romans, now they got abundance of food, right? Then they could have done from the famine among the Jews. For when they came first to the Romans, they were puffed up by famine and swelled like men in a dropsy. After which they all on the sudden overfilled these bodies that were before empty and so burst asunder accepting such only as were skillful enough to restrain their appetites and by degrees took in their food into the bodies unaccustomed to thereto. In other words, they're eating so much they're blowing up. Only the people who survived were the ones that said, we've got to be disciplined, just take a little bit of food here and there. Yet did another plague seize upon those that were thus preserved. For there was found among the Syrian deserters a certain person who was caught gathering pieces of gold out of the excrements of the Jews' bellies. For the deserters used to swallow such pieces of gold as were as we told you before when they came out. And for these did the seditious search them all. In other words, some of the before they escaped Jerusalem, they're swallowing gold, so they got something to do. And they get out, well, they found this out. They found out these guys are swallowing gold before they came out. For there was a great quantity of gold in the city, insomuch that as much was now sold in the Roman camp for twelve Attica, dramas, was sold before for twenty-five. But when the contrivance was discovered in one instance, the, famine, the fame of it filled their several camps. Everybody heard about it, that the deserters came to them full of gold. So the multitudes of the Arabians with the Syrians, cut up those that came as supplicants and searched their bellies. So they're, hey, these guys are escaping with gold. So the guys are thinking they're getting out, they're cutting them open, taking the gold out of their bellies. Nor does it seem to me that any misery befell the Jews that was more terrible than this. 
since in one night's time about 2,000 of these deserters were thus dissected. People, here's the problem. Israel had crucified the Lord and publicly called down judgment on themselves. In Matthew 27, 25, and all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And it was. It was. God's judgment on Israel in AD 70 matched their crime. Their crime was the crucifixion of their Messiah. The crime was the worst in history, so their punishment was also the worst in history. To call anything else the Great Tribulation is to downplay the immensity of that generation's crime. Renan said, From this time forth, hunger, rage, despair, madness dwelt in Jerusalem. It was a cage of furious maniacs. A city resounding with howling and inhabited by cannibals. A very hell. Titus, for his part, was atrociously vindictive. Every day, 500 unfortunates were crucified in the sight of the city with hateful refinements of cruelty or sufficient ground whereon to erect them. So they're crucifying people all outside the city so the Jews can see what's going on. It's terrible inside. You leave, it's terrible outside. There's just no escape. So we need to realize the scope of the great tribulation upon the people of Israel. It was not just those in Jerusalem that suffered and died. It was all over Palestine. The whole country was feeling this judgment of God. Josephus said this, There was not a Syrian city which did not slay their Jewish inhabitants and were more bitter enemies to us than were the Romans themselves. David Clark writes this, It is doubtful if anything before or since has equaled it for ruthless slaughter and merciless destruction. From the locality of these churches in Asia Minor, the seven churches, and to the borders of Egypt, the land was a slaughterhouse. City after city was wrecked, sacked, and burned, till it was recorded that cities were left without an inhabitant. So the Jews were just being slain, wiped out, everywhere over Palestine. The destruction of Jerusalem was far more than just the destruction of a city. Jerusalem and the temple were the center of worship of Yahweh, the God of gods and the Lord of lords. So with the destruction came a covenantal change. God's kingdom was taken from the Jews, as He promised it would be. And no longer would Gentiles rule over God's kingdom, because the kingdom was now spiritual. All right, it couldn't be taken over anymore. It was the spiritual kingdom. It was entered not by a physical birth, but by a spiritual birth. The old heavens and earth of Judaism were destroyed, and the new heavens and earth of spiritual Israel were established. It signaled an end of the age. The age that ended was the Jewish age. God had utterly destroyed the physical temple. With that destruction, all the genealogical records which qualified descendants of Aaron to serve as priests, were destroyed. The city was destroyed. People, God put an end to Judaism in AD 70. It is done. Alright? Revelation 2.9 and 3.9 calls the Jews the synagogue 
of Satan. There's no Jewish people today. God has no covenant with the Jewish people today. He has done with them. He has wiped it out. He will never again restore. That old covenant is done. It's over. Forever. We'll talk about that more as we go through this. But you know, people are dispensational today are looking for a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. Well, there's a mosque on that hill. So we got to get that down first, which is going to cause quite a holy war. Okay. And once it's the holy war will have to be won by the Jews, then take that mosque down, then start building the temple so they could get it built so it can be destroyed. It's just dumb, people. This happened. It's not happening over and over and over. The destruction of Jerusalem was not simply a local judgment. It was a covenantal judgment. Notice Yeshua's words. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. Talking to the Jews. From the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And by that he meant the people he was talking to. This generation. The judgment upon Jerusalem is not simply local. It reached all the way back to Abel. The blood of Abel was vindicated by God's judgment on his covenant people. It was far more people than a fall of a city. It was the end of an age. This is why Yeshua said it would be a great tribulation. Such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. For this reason, I ask, how could it be possible for there to be in the future another destruction of Jerusalem equal or greater to the one which happened in 87? It's already happened. Why do we need to recreate it? Because you didn't like that one? That didn't fit your plan? It's over, people. Yeshua said nothing would ever equal what happened in AD 70 to the Jewish people. You believe him? I do. <laughs> the great tribulation, people, is behind us. It's over. You're storing up food for the tribulation, you can start eating it now, okay? It's a historical event. And with the destruction of Jerusalem came the fulfillment of all prophecy. People, we live not in the Old Covenant age. We live in the New Covenant age, which is a never-ending age. The New Jerusalem is our home. The new heavens and new earth are where we live. Revelation 21 and 22 talks about it. And it is, we are in the presence of God now. He dwells with us, we dwell with Him. But I want you to notice that in 21 and 22, He talks about us being in the city, but He says, but outside are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and those who work a lie. And you're like, well, you know, the dispensational say this is heaven. Well, outside heaven, there's these bad guys. No, because we're in the city, people, but you know what's out there. Okay? The world is still out there, but they're not in the city. We are in the city, dwelling with God. But our call is to go outside and call those who are outside into the city. To call them to come in. The Spirit and the Bride say, come on! Alright? Whoever is a thirst, come and take the water of life freely. Freely. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for an opportunity to look at Josephus, Lord, it's certainly not light reading. It is sickening, Lord, but help us to understand how you hate sin. Your people turn from you, created idols, worship false gods. Lord, I thank you that we dwell in the new covenant, that we are in your presence, that we are part of your family, 
in union with your Son. Thank you for the glories, Lord, of the new covenant that we dwell in now. But as we look back on Jerusalem and its destruction, may we see your hatred of sin, Father. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. Okay. I'm glad that's over. Reading Josephus is like, whoa. That's a good question, Dora. I don't know how much the Jews really know about this. Well, it affects. Oh, the question was how you know a lot of people know about their cultures. Do the Jewish people understand what happened? Every Judaism changed after eighty-seven. Okay, I mean, it did change. It ended. Let me put it that way. It ended, but the Jews wanted to keep it going, so they kind of reinvented everything. They have not sacrificed since. And sacrifice is the heart and soul of Judaism, okay? Every every festival, every day, every day they sacrifice. It's done. They're not sacrificed. So they reinvented it and just kept on going. And to me, it's amazing that they can't look back and see, hey, something happened back there. And it all, like I said, they knew Deuteronomy 28. It all fits together. So why don't they wake up? Well, because God has to open their heart, Okay. They're blind to the truth until God does something. All right? Yeah, well, that's it. God has to open people's eyes. David? Um, I thought it was a good point that you brought out about the covenantal change. Because, um, like you say, not everybody understands about 70 AD, but you know, there are some that question it uh, in conjunction with like the Holocaust. That took part in the Second World War, right? You know how terrible that was, and it was terrible. But it's that covenantal change that makes that tribulation period so much greater than what they recently went through. Right, and that's what we we have to understand. God, these are God's people. Remember, He rejected the nations because they wouldn't worship Him. So He calls Israel; they're His people. And they keep turning away from him. So now he's destroying them. And it's a horrible thing. And right along with that, David, Tanya writes, Matthew twenty-one twenty-four says, Not been since the beginning of the world till now, nor ever will be. How would you address someone who says, What about the Holocaust during World War II? Well, what, the, what happened to the Holocaust was horrible, but it wasn't a covenantal change. All right? And I don't know that it was as horrible. It was, I mean, these people were marched into gas chambers. You know, they were starved. They had a lot of the same things. But, you know, you read the horrors. And here's, here's what I would tell those people, I guess, my bottom line is. My Lord Yeshua said nothing worse would happen. I believe him. Okay? The Holocaust was horrible. But, again, it, it wasn't God saying I'm done with my people. And he wasn't doing that. That, that, was already, that already happened. All right, and maybe this is just, you know, over, you know, a, a continuing reaction to the Jews who want to carry on saying we're Jews, we're God's people. No, you're not. That ended. The only way anybody is a child of God is by faith in Yeshua the Christ. 
Nothing to do with bloodlines. It hasn't had to do with bloodlines since the Lord showed up. All right? When you reject the Messiah, you're not a Jew. Because Paul said he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, not in the flesh. Okay? It is all spiritual now. And can we claim to be Jews? We are Jews. We're true Jews by faith in Christ. But you're not a Jew by nation or nationality or tribe. That's done. And that, again, like David said, that made it the worst. It was a covenantal judgment. Gary? I was thinking about the Holocaust during the Second World War while you were talking. But you made several points about the destruction of Jerusalem that didn't take place in the Holocaust. They weren't, as brutally as they were treated, they weren't killing each other and they weren't eating their children. And they were kept somewhat uh, in decent or maybe not decent conditions, but they didn't have to suffer for days and weeks and all. They just marched into the gas chambers and were killed. Whereas the people in the city of Jerusalem wanted to die and and left and threw themselves over the wall and stuff like that. Yeah, the people were trying to get out of the city. I mean, they were, they were doing whatever they could to get out because it was so bad. That's the you other know? part of it, too. They weren't in the right location. Yeah, that's right. They weren't in Jerusalem. But still, it, it is tragic, if you will, that the Jews continued past tense and perhaps even today to be persecuted and tortured and, and killed even today. Well, they claim to be God's people. And, you know, here's what's amazing to me about the Jews. You know, the Christian Zionists, we love Israel. Because the Bible says, he that touches Israel touches the apple of God's eye. Well, first of all, they got the wrong Israel. That's physical Israel. We're spiritual Israel. We're the one who God protects. All right? But, you know, so they're supporting Israel and they're all for what's going on over there. You know that in Israel, you cannot preach the gospel of Christ. It is forbidden. But Christians support these Christ-rejecting Jews who won't even allow you to preach the gospel in their country. And Christians are all about, oh, we love the Jewish people. Not understanding they are the Jewish people in truth if they follow Christ. What? Right. They say they're God's people and God said, no, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. David? Uh, You were talking about how there would have to be another holy war to overtake the hill and tear down the mosque and rebuild the temple uh, so it could be destroyed again. In addition to that, according to Daniel... There'd have to be another Roman Empire established <laughs> because Christ, small detail they can take care of. Because Christ, <laughs> it specifically says, you know, Christ's right. kingdom ends all these other kingdoms. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, Daniel chapter two said the stone without our hands comes and smashes the feet, which is the Roman. You know, so yeah, there's too many things. You know, none of it fits, none of it. But somehow we want to overlook history and say we're looking forward to something to come that already came a long time ago. It's not coming, people. It's over. And God is done with the Jews. And, you know, I, people think you're you're anti-Semitic. Well, say Yeshua was anti-Semitic. He called them the synagogue of Satan. That's kind of harsh, isn't it? He said, you're of the synagogue of Satan. All right? Because they rejected their Messiah, the one prophesied all through Scripture. He showed up. 
They spent their whole life memorizing Scripture. Messiah shows up. Nope, not the one we want. We need a military leader. We got to take care of Rome. And so they rejected their own Messiah. And so God said, okay, bring in the nations. He brought us back. Amen. Anybody else? Um, we're reading Walward there. He's got it all right. But uh, I'm just, <laughs> just a wrong time period. Just can't see it. Yeah. Because God hasn't opened his heart. Okay. It's open now. Yeah, it's open now. <laughs> yeah, he's he's no longer on this earth, so uh, he probably has a correct understanding here now. Alright, so your homework assignment is to go home, read the War of the Jews by Joseph. <laughs> you can get it online. Yeah. Just light reading, no, you know. But again, I, I I appreciate stuff like that because like I said, you compare that with the scripture saying, you see, this is what the Bible said. What Revelation, the book of Revelation is all about the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay? It's not about some future event to take over the whole earth. No, it's about the destruction of God's people, Jerusalem. They're the great whore of Babylon. You know? And God is wiping them out and that's it. It's done. Okay? And these, you know, the writings like Josephus are so eye-opening, but who reads Josephus? You know? I mean, you gotta be really serious to, you know, try to delve through some of that stuff, but I'll tell you, it's eye-opening. That's why I really appreciate what Chilton did. If you don't want to read Josephus, then get Chilton's book, The Great Tribulation, and read through that, cause it, like I said, he'll take Revelation and take Josephus, and you'll be like, you know, Revelation talks about the hailstones, the white stones, hailstones being coming down on Jerusalem. And Chilton talks about the Romans had catapults with white stones and they were flinging them over the wall. I mean, just so many things you read and you're like, oh my word, this is amazing. If you read Josephus and you're familiar with the Bible, while you're reading Josephus, a lot of that Oh, absolutely. That's the thing. You know, you read it and you'll go, oh, this is, I see what he's saying. He's saying they did what God said. Remember, Josephus is not a Christian. He's a Jew, just writing the history. All right. Some people question how accurate his history is, you know, but yeah, he may have, you know, but again, you can compare the writer, the writer Tacitus, some of the stuff he wrote too is just pretty amazing, you know, compared to scripture.